Hey guys, this is Cabane. Today we're going to keep talking about the importance of bridling the tongue, or in other words, the importance of obedience to what God says about our words. But we're going to do more than that. We're going to talk about why it is that we are supposed to conduct our speech in this way. What is the significance of the tongue? Why did God create the tongue where he did? What is the tongue's practical role in the operation of the whole human being? And in that question, I hope to help you see in a more intuitive way the reason why God's way is the right way, why God's way is the true way that will actually bring what we are seeking, whether explicitly or implicitly. Before getting into the main topic of today's video, I want to say several things on the housekeeping front. First of all, if you're not a subscriber, please do subscribe if you enjoy this content. Second of all, if you are a subscriber, turn on the bell that's right next to the subscribe button below this video. If you turn on the bell, you will get notifications for every new video that comes out or for every new premiere that is scheduled. If you subscribe but you don't turn on that bell, and most of my subscribers have not, there's no guarantee that you will in fact be notified when I produce a new video. And I think the reason most of you subscribe is so that you can be notified. So make sure to do that. Um, third, uh, I want to thank everyone who's become a patron. Um, it is so helpful. The only reason that I've been able to keep making these videos is because of the number of people who have become patrons and the steady increase of uh, that number. Uh, that said, if you have not become a patron, but you're in a financially good place and you enjoy these videos, I ask to please consider becoming a patron at one of my three tiers. You can also do this through YouTube memberships, which is somewhat more expensive because YouTube takes a higher cut, but it is not merely a sign of your appreciation, though I take that appreciation um, very seriously and I, 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 I thank everybody for expressing it in, in whatever capacity that they do. Um, it's not merely a token of appreciation, but it actually helps continue to produce this sort of content. And my hope and prayer is that going into the future, um, uh, my number of patrons will increase to such a degree that I can not only continue to produce these videos, but also I can um, reduce and eventually eliminate advertisements because right now I depend not only on the patronage money, but on the stuff I get from AdSense. I, I, I simply could not do what I'm doing right now without it. But I hope that that won't be true in the future. I want to reduce the number of ads and then eliminate them. Um, I hope that I can uh, afford at some point in the future to pay somebody to help me produce these videos at a higher standard. I know that's important, but right now I just don't have the skills, the time uh, to do that myself, and I don't have the, the money to, to, to pay someone uh, what, they really, what, what such a job really um, uh, should be paid uh, and continue to make this kind of stuff. Um, producing these videos, uh, and I'm, I'm, nobody has, has said anything, which is leading me to go, oh, you don't know how hard I work. I just, but just to kind of give you a, a sense of why I, uh, push this so shamelessly, producing these videos does take a fair amount of time, not only in the reading, uh, that precedes it, not only in the outlining of the videos on paper and on the PowerPoint, um, but also, there are several takes of most of the videos that, that, that don't work out. Um, and uh, that, that takes some time. And then most importantly, there is the kind of maintenance with uh, talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, which I enjoy. I, 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 it's not a burden. It just takes time, right? And there's objectively only a certain amount of time. Um, there's the one-on-one -on -one discussion I have with people about questions that they have. Um, there is uh, uh, the... Um, replying to comments, uh, and many of these replies become quite extended, um, and then there's just kind of keeping up with the general flow of things. Uh, so it, there are three tiers of patronage. The uh, middle tier is called premium, and that will guarantee you access to all patron-exclusive content. The lowest tier will guarantee you access to some of that patron-exclusive content, but the top tier, elite, will guarantee you at least one hour every month of one-on-one -on -one discussion with me about an, any question that you have where I think I might have at least something to say. Um, please do try to get in touch with me within the first 10 days of the month, though if you get in touch with me afterwards, I can still probably fit you in, but please just do try to get it done within the first 10 days so that I can uh, put you onto my schedule. I'm quite neurotic about schedules. Um, it's just a tick that I have. Um, uh, and also I'm uh, positive, if you, if you are having a, a serious problem, you think I might be able to help, um, 
please do feel free to ask uh, whether we can talk one-on-one, -on -one, even if you can't afford to be uh, a top-tier patron. So uh, what the top tier does is it guarantees at least an hour, though usually, honestly, if you want to talk more than that, I'm happy to do that, and I won't overcharge you. I just talked to a couple patrons last night for four hours total, and it was a great time. Um, I, I learned a lot from them. I hope they learned something from me. Um, uh, but it's not that I'm going to charge you $20 per hour. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to nickel and dime you. Um, but it is a guarantee for that slot because I do need some way to kind of prioritize the number of people who are interested in having these discussions. Uh, so uh, with all that said, oh, one more thing. As you can see, I'm now doing live premieres of these videos. So the videos are pre-recorded. I'm not talking live to you right now. They're pre-recorded, but they do premiere at a certain time. So they're pre-announced. And also people are able to discuss it if they catch it during the premiere. They can discuss it in the chat box to the right. And also it allows you to do this thing called Super Chat. What Super Chat is, is it allows you to make a one-time donation to this channel of uh, any, any amount that you enter uh, by clicking the appropriately labeled dollar sign right below the chat box on the right of this video. So if you're interested in making a one-time contribution, again, same thing as the, the, the Patreon, same thing as YouTube membership. Um, it, it's instrumental and it really helps me out. If you're interested in doing that, you can do that while the video is premiering or in the lead up to the premiere. So please consider doing that um, if you enjoy this content on a regular basis. So thank you everyone who subscribed. Thank you everybody who's become a patron and a member and has made these contributions. Thank you for everyone who has views. I really do appreciate it. Okay, now let's get into the main topic of the video after we say a prayer, which is going to actually relate in its themes to the subject of this video. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, while thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thine all holy good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. God is the one who works in us. Any good work that we do is done by the Holy Spirit in us, and that means something very concrete. It's not something that we just say abstractly to reinterpret our past experience, as it feels like we're doing it all by our own power, but we know by faith that it's the Holy Spirit who works in us. I can tell you from direct experience, there is a very concrete reality uh, of uh, apprehending that the only reason you are ha you have the power to do something is because the Spirit of God is moving and operating in you. I gave you an example in a video I did uh, over uh, in the last two weeks or so about cleaning my room. I realized I could not I could not do that by my own power. God likes to have a clean room because God himself has the priests clean the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the paradigm for all houses because God is God. Tabernacle is his house and we're the image of God. And our houses are our tabernacles, our temples. Um, and uh, if you look at a, a house which is uh, haunted in a demonic context, you will find it is an absolute mess. It is a pigsty. And that suggests to me very strongly, in fact, I think it entails that a clean room is uh, nearer to divine perfection than is a disorganized dirty room but that's just not in my disposition and i prayed to god god i don't need your help in this i don't need you to meet me halfway i need you to dwell in me and work in me so that i can do this so that i can pick up the first thing and i walked into my room three hours later i'd totally forgotten about saying that it was just something i said in passing. I didn't really have any expectation that the Holy Spirit would work in me to clean my room. I was just so frustrated with the mess. But I walked in there and I accidentally knocked an empty water bottle over. And I picked up that water bottle and I put it in the trash. And you know what happened? I found myself cleaning up everything else. Four hours later, that room was clean. And I look back on it. It wasn't as if, you know, there was missing time, as if I was being possessed by something. But there was another power which was operating in such a way that my own will, my own energy, my own power of activity was not dissolved or destroyed or eliminated, but was made alive, was allowed to be itself for the first time. That is what it means for God to dwell in us and to work in us. It means something very real and very concrete. 
Now, that doesn't mean that every time the Spirit works in you, you are going to have that same direct experience because there is a separation internal to the human being between our mind and the apprehension of what is true about ourselves. In the fall, God is life. God is perfect unity and harmony. He, uh, the oneness of God is uh, perfected in his threeness, and the threeness of God is rooted in his oneness. So oneness and threeness are not kind of split uh, down in the middle. No, actually, in a divine sense, threeness is essential to oneness, and oneness is essential to threeness in the most perfect and real sense. So sin is a separation. It is a uh, inversion of everything about God, everything that is characteristic of who he is, and everything that is divine in its qualities. So sin leads to disintegration. Note, dis is a negation of the word integration. Integrity, that means truthfulness, but we also see there is the idea of an integral whole. Why? Because the truth, who is a person, as St. Justin Popovich says, the truth is the hypostasis of Jesus Christ, the eternal logos of God in whom all things exist and therefore in whom every factual statement about reality subsists in him. Um, when we say the truth, when we do not lie, we have integrity because we have harmony with the one after whose image we are created and into whose likeness we are destined to be conformed by the Spirit in the perfection of our natures. So that's why I'm going to start beginning this, uh, my videos with a prayer as long as I remember. Please pray that I would remember. But I think if we pray together to begin these videos, there is a much, much, much higher chance. And I hate using the word chance. I don't think it's appropriate, but I can't think of a better word. Much, much, or probability, much, much higher probability that there will be genuine understanding produced by my words because the word of God is living and active. And the word of God is a person, Jesus Christ, who imprints himself on the world and who expresses himself in the book of God, which is the Bible. Um, one text which has gripped me recently, you find these texts just, there are certain texts which at certain times of your life will reach out as if they are alive, which of course they are. Uh, they reach out, they grab you, and they just stick in your mind and you start to see everything in light of them. So the text that I'm talking about is in uh, uh, first, I believe it's the first Thessalonian letter, uh, and it is first uh, Thessalonians two, verse thirteen, and we also uh, thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word or logos of God, the word is logos, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which energizes, this is the literal rendering of the Greek, which energizes in you, the faithful. So this is the, um, it energizes in you, the faithful. The word of God is, of course, the hypostasis of Jesus, the Messiah, who is imprinted on everything that is said in the Bible, on everything that is said through the apostles in the New Testament. Everything that is said in Scripture is the word of Jesus. Everything that is said in Scripture is perfect. The words of God are true and pure, refined seven times. But they are living and active words. That which comes by the Spirit through the apostles' mouth to proclaim Jesus Christ enter into our hearts if the Spirit pricks our heart so that we might receive it so that the word of God might find a home in us as Jesus says in John uh, chapter 8 verse 37 and this is what the Lord says I know that you are seed of Abraham yet you seek to kill me because my word my logos finds no home in you finds no place in you this is the major theme of John's gospel which is that in my father's house there are many dwellings the son dwells in the father through the Spirit, and he, by the Spirit, pours out that mutual interiority onto us so that the church, the disciples of the Lord, in the vision of the divine glory, will be one, as Jesus says to the Father, as you and I are one. It's a profound and amazing statement to really realize what that means. 
But in order for the word of God to energize in us, in order for it to be the operative principle in our lives, there has to be a place for it in our hearts. That's why Jesus speaks in, in the uh, story of the expulsion of the devils from a person's house. The devils are expelled, the house is swept clean, but if it remains empty, they will come back with their friends and a person will be left worse than they were to begin with. God expands our hearts so that the word of God, who is Jesus, might dwell in us through what Jesus says. And as the fathers teach, the Logos of God is called Logos because it is in the Son that the Father at all times and in every way exercises his activity. The Father always acts in and through the Son. He always energizes in and through the Son. And what a Logos, with a lowercase l, means is it is the divine idea or archetype for a particular sort of creature. So there is a particular mode in which uh, a thing participates in God's creative activities. God brings various qualities which inhere in himself into a particular conjunction, and he imprints that constellation of qualities onto nothingness and thus gives birth to a creaturely nature. And that creaturely nature is realized in particular subjects, um, which uh, uh, idiomatically, that is in a unique way, express the nature which unites them in common. So the word of God Jesus is called the Word of God because he is the perfect image of the Father. Everything about the Father is reflected back to the Father by the Spirit in the person of the Son because the Father speaks everything he is to the Son and it is spoken back to him in this divine eternal dialogue into which we are brought. And that divine dialogue is opened up to facilitate the creation of the world. That is why in the beginning of God's creation, we see that the Spirit is dwelling. The Spirit is hovering over the surface of the waters. God has created the heavens, which are complete, which are already glorious, which are mature. We see that this is about the celestial heavens, the counsel of God in other biblical reflections on creation week. Psalm 104, for example, has seven slots. First slot has the angels, the ministers, the flames of fire. That is what dwells in the heaven of heavens, or the highest heaven, as the scripture often calls it. Um, the earth is gradually, over six days, developed, perfected, grown to be more like its heavenly archetype. Man is the image of God. He is the partner with God in perfecting and growing and developing the creation to be the imprint of its heavenly archetype so that earth and heaven might ultimately be united into one single reality, which is the reality or the theater in which the real story takes place in the world to come, the eighth day, the real beginning. A marriage, which is what happens at the resurrection of the body. Marriage supper of the Lamb is like any marriage. It's not the end of something. It's the end of one story, but that one story turns out to simply be the preface to the real story. The real marriage, the, the real relationship we have with God is something which we now prepare for and will begin in the world to come, which I think is... It's very exciting because, I mean, how wonderful is the gospel even now? Uh, and that will be deepened to greater and greater degrees of intensity for eternity. But I bring this up in this context for a very particular reason, which is that God creates the world by the word. At the beginning, the spirit hovers over the surface of the waters, and then God speaks. And the reason that they are ordered in this particular way is because it is the spirit who always expresses the person of the Son. The Spirit carries the Son from the Father and uh, manifests him to the world. That's rooted in an eternal Trinitarian relationship, which I've talked about in my video on the Filioque, explaining why I don't agree with the Roman Catholic teaching as articulated at Florence. Nevertheless, there is an eternal and unique relationship between the Spirit and the Son, which is why he's called the Spirit of, of the Son. Um, and it's why the Spirit is present over the surface of the waters um, before God speaks. The Spirit carries that speech into the world and thus molds and shapes and brightens this formless void and dark mass of water into the splendid and complex uh, organism that we meet on the sixth creation day. 
and over which we ourselves are the crown. We're the head of the church or of the creation, uh, not in an external sense, as if you know we are looking in from the outside. We are the head of the creation in the sense that there is a head on a body. We are the most essential part of it, and it is from the head that life flows to the whole body. That's what it means for man to exercise dominion over the creation. The fact that we exercise dominion, as James says, by our words, is because that is how God creates. God exercises perfect and total dominion over the world. Why? Because he is the one who has ultimate sovereignty and capacity to decide fully on his own and according to the purpose of his will exactly what is and isn't going to happen in a way that is internally consistent, right? So God can't create a square circle, not because there's something he can't do, but because a square circle isn't a thing at all. It's just um, a, a conjunction of words which becomes meaningless by the uh, meaningless uh, context of their relation. But in creating the world from nothing, God demonstrates the fact that he is perfectly sovereign to rule over it because he's the one who set it up in, to, to begin with. He is the one who wired it and thus he's the one who knows how it is wired and thus how to act in relation to it to bring about the perfection of his divine purpose. Now we have a tongue. We can speak. Speech is of divine origin. It's, it's, it's strange to me that some people say the Bible cannot be the word of God because it is written in a human language, but a human language is not a language opposed to God. It was given to us by God. Language itself is a gift of God, and it is uh, it exemplifies the wonder of divine life in many um, and various ways. I want you to consider the way that speech functions Throughout Genesis, Genesis in particular has a profound theology of speech because Genesis begins with God speaking. The spirit hovers over the surface of the waters. And remember, spirit is wind. Uh, spirit is um, space. Like this is the, uh, the symbols that uh, are naturally appropriate to the person of the spirit. The spirit is associated with water. What are all of these things? What do they hold in common? What they hold in common is that they create a context within which communion can occur. If you go to space, like outer space, I mean, where there's no air and you try to speak, nobody will hear you. Why? Because there is nothing to carry it. The spirit is the one who carries speech from one subject to another. The Father and the Son eternally dialogue in love through the Holy Spirit, who is the mediator between the two of them. And I want to emphasize to you that mediator does not imply a reduction in the perfection of the message which is mediated. I think that's one reason why people might have trouble with this word. In God's way of doing things, a mediator does not successively reduce the intensity of that message which is mediated. So I think many people assume, just in the way that they implicitly frame the concept in their mind, if you have, on one end you've got God, on the other hand, and you have the person to whom he's speaking, and you have seven mediators in between, they tend to assume, at least implicitly, and that shows up in the way that they respond to this kind of model, that at every stage of the process, the message is marred a little bit more. But in God's way of doing things, he imparts the power to transmit his own life in relation to other creatures. And he imparts that at every step alongside the chain. So he transmits his message, just to follow this analogy through, through seven mediators. But each of these seven mediators, he is immediately present in as the one who imparts the power of transmitting God's speech. So God is at the beginning. God is at the end. He is the one who sustains man as the image of God to attain his likeness. And God is present in the middle. And that is a Trinitarian reality. The Father is present at the beginning. It is he from whom all things flow. The Son is present at the end. He is the one to whom all things flow, for whom all things were made. And the Spirit facilitates and declares the communion between Father and Son. He is the one in whom all things flow.
Water is like this. A fish moves within water. Take a fish out of water, what happens? It can't move anymore. The motion, the energy, uh, this anima, animus, um, animation. In, in, in the Latin language, um, the word for animal is, in fact, rooted and grounded in that word animus. You can see this in the English language as well. Animal, animal, animus. Animal, animus. Why? Because what distinguishes the animal kingdom as the as living beings from the rest of the world? They can move freely in relation to the world. They can move from one place to another that is not, pre that is not predictable by necessity from their point of origin. We've talked about this in my video on blood. I think in a biblical sense, um, what a, strictly speaking, what a living being is in the bodily context is a blood-bearing being. The spirit is the one who allows all things to exist in relation to each other. He is the context in whom we can speak. He is, as St. Paul says, quoting the classical tradition, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. This has immense practical implications. Um, one thing which I discovered which is that it was that my ability to study scripture and to see things in it that many people do not immediately see and to help others to see that, which I, I, I find it so delightful to see the riches in God's word and to help other people see that. There's nothing which is more fulfilling for me um, than to see the light go on in someone else's mind. Um, it is a deeply enriching experience for me. But I realized that this gift, which for a long time, at least implicitly, I had taken credit for, this gift was not my own. And this wasn't just an abstract theoretical realization. No, I realized it because several years after the fact, I noticed that there was a very specific moment in time where I had a lengthy series of world-shaking epiphanies in relation to scripture which helped me read scripture in a way that was exponentially more productive than anything I had ever read or said beforehand. And you know what happened about a month before these epiphanies are, uh, happened, uh, uh, started happening? And the epiphanies happened within basically the space of a year. I was ordained a reader in the Orthodox Church by the bishop. And in the service for the ordination of a reader, this is what the um, bishop says. O Lord Almighty, elect this thy servant and sanctify him and enable him with all wisdom and understanding to exercise the study and reading of thy divine words, preserving him in blamelessness of life. The liturgy is something objective. In other words, it's something which you can look towards and you can say that this concretely happened, whether or not you intuitively perceive that thing to have happened or not. This is why the liturgy helps to ground us so that we aren't just free-floating throughout our relationship with God, hoping that we are correctly interpreting the promptings we perceive to be from the Spirit. Now, the Spirit absolutely gives us promptings. I am not in any way denying that. But the liturgy is the principle which unifies and stabilizes our relationship with God because God has made certain promises to be present in a specific way in a liturgical context, and that promise is guaranteed to be fulfilled whether or not we are feeling particularly spiritual on that day. If the day you are baptized, you aren't feeling very spiritual, it doesn't matter because our confidence that we have been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit with Jesus Christ is not rooted in any sense of whether we feel alive or not. Rather, it is rooted in the memory of, and by memory I mean uh, the knowledge of the fact of the reality that we have been baptized. It's rooted in that reality because God has promised to meet us there in a specific way and we know that he always fulfills his promises. So the Spirit of God really works through the word of a bishop to do something. And what I came to see is that the promised gift of the Spirit in the ordination service for a reader, that was what enabled me 
to actually see scripture in a new way. It wasn't something that I came up with by my own power. It was the Holy Spirit who through his promised activity as guaranteed to us in the liturgical tradition. We ought to use, I think, the book of needs more often. It is an arsenal of powerful anti-diabolical weaponry. And we need to pay our priest when he does a service for us because the poor guy has an immense burden on his shoulders, not only usually feeding a family, not only pastoring a church, but having to hear the whispers of people backbiting against him, uh, of people feeling that it's inappropriate to, um, you know, be establish a, a, a warm and personal relationship with him. And uh, on top of that, there is a whole army of devils specifically dedicated to destroying the lives of our priests so we need to use the book of needs and we need to be thankful to god through his servants the priests and be gracious with them and be patient with what we take to be their mistakes um but god creates new worlds through his word and his word is most perfectly realized and exemplified in a liturgical context that's where we know that he speaks that's where we know because he's guaranteed it that he is present by the spirit however we feel in that moment and thus we know that god will do what he promised to do by his word in the spirit and that's what he did in me it wasn't it wasn't my own power it was the gift of the holy spirit as it's transmitted in this um, service in thy light shall we see light is more than a pretty phrase we see the supernatural uncreated light of god because we are granted such that it is internal to our heart we are granted the eyes of the lord that is we're granted that power by which god himself apprehends the divine uncreated light we see the world and we see god from a god's eye point of view well, how is it that God's eyes are what enables us to see God? It's because God is Trinity. That is because this relationship of mutual interiority, of mutual relation, of mutual knowledge, both qualitatively and archetypally, both knowledge of the Logi, which are present in the person of the Son, from the Father, in the Spirit, and the direct apprehension and perception of the uncreated joy with which Father, Son, and Spirit rejoice together, we are able to share in these relational activities because God himself from all eternity is relational. This is the theological foundation of the power of language. So let's talk about some specific texts. I want you to remember the Bible is the word of God. So some people say that um, the Bible is the word of God because Christ is the word of God. And I understand what they're trying to say by that. I understand what they mean. Um, but nevertheless, it's not correct to say that because the fathers of the church speak of the Bible as the word of God. Basil the Great says, let the word of God decide between us. St. Justin Popovich um, says concerning the Holy Scriptures the following remarkable words. All that is necessary for this world and the people in it the Lord has stated in the Bible. In it, he has given the answers to all questions. There is no question which can torment the human soul and not find its answer either directly or indirectly in the Bible. Man cannot devise more questions than there are answers in the Bible. If you fail to find the answer to any of your questions in the Bible, it means that you have, not, that you have either posed a senseless question, like a square circle, or did not know how to read the Bible and did not finish reading the answer in it. So, what makes sola scriptura, sola scriptura, something that we do not hold, is not the idea that the Bible is sufficient as a disclosure of God in the world. It is rather the idea that scripture alone is normative. Okay, So the idea is that tradition does not have the capacity to constitute a normative rule for the interpretation of scripture. So one uh, position that some people spell out is uh, called prima scriptura. And the idea is that what tradition is, is the normative rule of biblical interpretation. You read St. Vincent of Larens, uh, this is what he says, essentially. You find in many fathers and theologians all the way down to the present. St. Justin Popovich is a 20th century Orthodox dogmatic theologian. Uh, you find fathers and theologians all the way down to the present who affirm in very strong terms the material sufficiency of scripture. 
Okay, so that means that everything that the church teaches is in Scripture, either implicitly or explicitly. But it's in there objectively. So it really was part of the divine intention in producing these specific words in this specific order. And if it is objectively present, then there is a way of apprehending it. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. Jesus teaches about the difficulty of finding wisdom. Solomon says, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, the glory of kings to search it out. It's only in the process of searching it out of working through a difficult biblical and interpretive question that it becomes truly precious to us those things which we have to work hard to find are the things which are most precious to us and i can attest this from direct experience the fact that the bible began for me as so obscure and so strange in most of it but has gradually through the grace of god and through the work of many wonderful biblical interpreters such as james jordan uh peter lightheart um and through the, the 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 knowledge of the tradition as it's communicated by some of the great theologians of church history ancient and modern maximus the confessor demetrius stanloi uh, george florovsky um what scripture says and seeing that come into focus has become far more precious to me than if it had just been given in bullet points at the beginning of my Christian life. Because if that's just given in bullet points, we tend to read it through. It's so straightforward, we assume we know it by heart and we realize too late that we've actually forgotten everything in it. It's only by working hard that it will engrave itself onto our souls, engrave itself onto our memory. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible, that is the prophetic word, was sent into the world, and it changed human the human family. By God's word, Israel was molded and reshaped. The first period of um, Israel's history after Sinai, Israel was born as a nation and as a bride of God at Sinai. First part is the period of the tabernacle, and they worship idols, they worship false gods, they worship devils during this period. But over and over again, whenever they worship devils, they're spanked. The uh, God, uh, when, when Israel worships a foreign deity, that foreign culture comes and conquers Israel. God says to them, as it were, if you think that this is the deity whom you ought to love and devote yourself to, I will show you what it is like to live in a culture which is permeated by the presence of this kind of God. It happens over and over. But eventually, by the time of the United Monarchy, Israel has mostly learned its lesson. Israel has a new kind of sin. It is not idolatry, usually, occasionally it is, but it is not, strictly speaking, um, crude idolatry that is the worship of false deities. Instead, it is the worship of the one true God, but in a way inconsistent with his commandments. Solomon builds the temple. There are specific regulations about the unique place that the temple is to have within the life of Israel. When the central sanctuary is standing, Israel is not to have high places, that is, cult sites which they build on their own initiative, to build their way up to God. It is only in a place where God causes his name to be remembered, that is, where he has actively disclosed himself in relation to a certain space that the sacral um, table of the Holy Temple can exist. That's why Elijah can build an altar on Mount Carmel, because through the prophetic word, God has caused his name to be remembered there. This is what the central sanctuary commandment is really all about. It's the place which the Lord your God shall choose. His divine election of that place is the central accent of the theology of Deuteronomy. In any case, throughout the period of the kings, Israel worships again and again on the high places. God spanks them. God, God judges them. And eventually, basically, they learn their lesson. So by the time they return from their exile in Babylon, God has changed them. By his prophetic word, he has given them the Torah. The Torah has soaked into the people of Israel in the period of the judges. God has given them the prophets, which have soaked into the soil of Israel throughout the period of the kings, both the united monarchy and divided monarchy alike. And with that word, that rain from heaven, as the word is called in Deuteronomy 11 and in the book of Isaiah, with that word sent into the world to fertilize the soil of Israel, they come back from their exile in Babylon. And what is it that Isaiah says concerning the people during this period of time? As I have said before in my video on Isaiah 40 to 55, it is a serious mistake to take the entirety of Isaiah 40 to 55 as speaking of the exile in Babylon. Instead, Isaiah 40 to 55 is a prophetic um, timeline, as it were. You see in Numbers 24, one of the most significant passages in the Pentateuch, that there are uh, the, 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 the uh, Balaam speaking in a prophetic capacity says that 
he sees a star that is rising, but it is far off. It is not near. That star is distant. The Messiah is distant. We know it's the Messiah because he says it's the king from the line of Judah. You can see that comparing Numbers 24, Genesis 49. He sees the star, but it's far off. And then he gives a sequence of three historical moments in Israel's history. And this helps Israel to understand its relative timeline. They understand the way in which the clock is ticking and where the hands of the clock actually are in relation to the messianic age those people who say that the biblical prophets didn't speak of an age other than their own are unable to read what is on the page the first is verse 20 he looked on amalek took up his discourse said amalek was the first among the nations its end is utter destruction this is fulfilled at the beginning of the monarchy saul destroys the amalekites first samuel chapter 15 and then Verse 21, he looked and the Kenite took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Ashur takes you away captive. Ashur is Assyria. This is when the Assyrian Empire spreads, it exiles, moves around, shatters the nations. So we have the united monarchy, then we move to the beginning of the exilic period. And then finally, he took up his discourse, verse 23, took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Kittim and shall afflict Ashur and Eber, and he, sh he too shall come to utter destruction. This is a wonderfully fascinating text because it's quoted in Daniel chapter 11 and we know given the development of history in Daniel chapter 11 that the prophet is here speaking of the Romans and he is speaking of the Roman intervention in the Maccabean war and that third event marks out Israel's timeline as having as being on the verge of the coming of the king now Isaiah does the same kind of thing in Isaiah 41 to 43 it's all about the redemption that God works from Sennacherib. But nevertheless, Israel disobeys God. And so God says, your temple will be destroyed, will be destroyed. Uh, that's sometimes translated away because it doesn't make sense, given the idea that this is all about the exile from Babylon when the temple is already destroyed. But in fact, it is not just about the exile from Babylon. Well, then 44 to uh, 48 speaks of the redemption that God works from Israel's exile in Babylon. He brings the Jews back home. And the Jews now, uh, they serve as witnesses to the Gentiles. It's, just, it's, it's like the period of the patriarchs. The patriarchs, they lived in land which was not their own. They were promised that land, but they didn't live in it. But they bore witness to the Gentiles. Abimelech, Pharaoh, Joseph bears witness to the whole Gentile world, and many see the truth of the God of heaven. Um, the return from Babylon is a second patriarchal period. Israel goes back to Mesopotamia, then they come back out. And you see that by the words of God, God has created a new reality for Israel. They become a different kind of people, a people who does not worship idols, nor do they worship God in a context that is not the one he designated. But we read this, Isaiah 48, verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. This is the root of Jesus's own ministry and the great themes of his ministry, which is that the central challenge facing the Jews is the same challenge that is facing the whole human family, which is that we have a sickness of the heart. It is in the heart where murder begins. It is in the heart where adultery begins, which shatters families, causes resentment in children, causes um, a cataclysmic system crash, is what happens when you have serial adultery permeating a whole society. It is a society which is governed by resentments, by mutual hatreds, by distrust, by games of power, uh, and not communion based in real charity. Jesus understood and taught that the central accomplishment of the Messiah is to heal the human heart because it is only from the heart that rivers of living water will flow, as he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. It is only from the human heart that the whole human being can be restructured and healed, and through the human being, um, the whole world, because God creates the world by his logos, by his word. Man is the image of God. Man does, does the same thing. He rules the world by his tongue. But out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So God has to heal the heart. 
if man's tongue is going to be healed and if the world is going to be healed as a consequence. Israel calls, or Israel swear by the name of the Lord, confess the God of Israel, not in truth or right. We see likewise in uh, in the same chapter, verse eight, or pardon, verse six. You have heard. Now see all this, and will you not declare it? This question has an implied answer in the negative. That is, Israel ought to have declared it. They ought to have borne witness more vigorously. Instead, by the time that Jesus arrives on the scene, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent has matured to the fullness either of their perfection or their iniquity. The wheat and the tares always grow together. The seed of the woman grows into the remnant of Israel. They've been prepared to receive the living incarnate logos of God and thus to be the root which springs forth and fills the whole world with fruit, Isaiah 27, verse 6. But you also have the seed of the serpent that has grown to its fullness, the tares in God's vineyard. And these tares ought to have been a witness to the true God to all the world, but they instead make their converts twice the son of hell as themselves, as Jesus says. So this is a, it, it's amazing just how rich and beautifully scripture anticipates exactly what Jesus does. And St. Paul, as a God-inspired, um, spirit-led interpreter of this very Bible, says, Romans 2, 17 24, not Gentiles are sinful, and oh, by the way, Jews are sinful too, but that the uh, Israel, which was called and elected to be the light of the world, has instead become, by the presence of tares inside the vineyard, the instrument, the means by which the name of God is blasphemed among the nations. What is it Paul says? Paul says, if you yourself are sure that you are a light to those in darkness and a guide to the blind. This isn't just a claim to be more righteous than the Gentiles. It is a claim to be the solution to the problem, which is spelled out in Romans uh, chapter 1, the first part of Romans chapter 2. Then in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, uh, what value is circumcision? Much in every way. For to them, God entrusted his oracles. Well, entrusted does not mean just given, but given for the sake of a purpose. You ought, you're supposed to do something with that which is entrusted to you. And Jesus in his parables speaks this way uh, frequently. God entrusts to us uh, a talent, and we ought to manage that wealth, spiritually speaking, in such a way that its value is increased. That is what it means for God to entrust it to us. In the same way, Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God so that there might be a light to the nation, so that um, the Gentile world might be saved, redeemed, and illumined. And in fact, that purpose is accomplished because Jesus takes on the mission and destiny of Israel. He joins himself with the remnant of Israel, which had been prepared for his coming since the call of Abraham, and in a deeper sense, since the creation of Adam himself. And through that, he circumcises the heart, Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 6, and he gives birth to a new reality. Israel shall take root, um, Jacob shall spring forth, and, bear, and shall fill the whole world with fruit. Well, this verse in Isaiah 27, 6, it calls back to an earlier passage, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 speaks of the root of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So we see in the book of Isaiah itself that the messianic significance of Israel's giving birth to a redeemed humanity and the central role of the Messiah in that story is present in the internal structure of the book. That's why Isaiah 49-54 then speaks of the servant being totally faithful in doing what Israel was not faithful to do. We've gone on for some time, and I want to make sure that what I'm about to say is seen by um, the most amount of people who watch this series. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this passage, I might say a few words about it, and then we are going to focus on it in the next video, which I may make just after this one, but we'll upload tomorrow. Um, Proverbs 15, verses 1 to 7. Okay. Imagine what it would be like for you, and this is just myself as much as anybody else, if you really believed that the words which are given here are perfect, 
they are absolutely true. They are from the one who created you. God made you for a purpose. He knows everything about you, far more than you know yourself. He knows your whole family history. He knows every trial you've gone through, and he knows every talent that you have. He knows exactly what you ought to do in relation to the world, both generally and specifically, and he knows what he wants to bring forth from you in the whole scheme of cosmic history. That's how profoundly he has his eye on you. Paul says, Live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The way that God governs the world is a way where each particular human person is not a small fraction of the whole of humanity. Rather, each human being, every human person, is a manifestation and a realization of the entirety of human nature. And the mode of that manifestation can only be realized in communion with God and with other human beings. The human family is a single organism. It is one tree. The image of God is man with a capital M, the man who is created male and female. So corporately, it's the one new man reborn in Christ. It's the man who gives birth to 70 distinct nations in Genesis 10 and then many others afterwards. It's a single organism, which is both one and many because it is created after the image of God who is both one and three. But imagine if you really believed everything I just said and that God knowing this, knowing, having you directly and exactly in his mind, you specifically, he never loses sight of anything. He knew exactly who you were going to be. As he had you in his mind, he wrote these words. He inspired Solomon to write exactly these words. Of course, uh, according to the uh, correspondence of this text with the original language, but th th it, that's not that hard to demonstrate. Um, if that's really true, if the one who wired you, made you to be who you are, wired you in the way that he did and said, this is how things are supposed to work, just think about how seriously we ought to take this passage as genuine binding instruction on our life, which is not only binding, but which will bring blessing, which we will find by direct experience. Oh my gosh, I should have been doing this ages ago because it works. This is the way in which a human being can really find fulfillment in another person. Proverbs 15 verses 1 to 7. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure. But trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. Have you ever spoken to someone you've, you've spoken maybe more harshly than you intended? Spoken to someone who you care about, and you can see in their eyes that what you said just broke them. Maybe they were excited about something, and you spoke with just not even disagreement, just disdain. And you can see that, you know, they just... They were excited to share something with you and, and it's, it's, it's snapped. It's a hard thing to go through, um, especially with someone you care about. Um, but that's what perverseness in speech does. It breaks the spirit of people. And because man has one heart, man is one nature, uh, man is consubstantial, man ought to be unified in Christ so that he has one mind, one heart, one spirit. There's one body and one spirit, just as there is one hope which belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The oneness of God multiplies in a fruitful way to create the unity of all of these other things. So when you break the spirit of somebody, and I've done this, um, when you break the spirit of someone, it's hard to unbreak it. And it reverberates through you. You can feel it too. So what I would say is... Righteous anger 
is quite rare relative to the times that we say about ourselves. Oh, I was angry in a righteous sense. That's why Solomon and Jesus are so um, emphatic, usually without any qualification, about what anger does. This is what I'll close with. I remember one time I was uh, um, I was talking to someone who I knew very well, a close friend, and I felt that he was speaking to me with condescension. Um, he wasn't. I just felt that way. And it was like something possessed me and took control of me. I mean, it really felt like this burning rage just bubbled up um, and said with, you know, with a tone that's the kind of tone you would expect before you murder someone. You can see how murder arises from hatred in the heart. I'm saying it was about to murder him. Just I can see that the way in which these two things are related. And I said with just this intense rage, never speak to me that way again. Got it? And afterwards, when it died down, it was like, where did that come from? What was that? What was that that took control of me? That was like fire spinning out of control, lighting, uh, lighting a whole forest on fire so that there's only ash which is left. If you make a habit of that, every word you speak will one day break people and burn them down. Um, I mean, I, 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 I was compelled to apologize, um, and it, it was, I was horrified by myself because. I saw in myself something that I didn't want to believe was still there, but it emerged from the great depths to bring destruction. So don't you want to be gentle with others and you want to be critical of yourself in the sense that don't be quick to assume the best of your own intentions. Try to be as honest as you know how to be with yourself and pray to God that he will, by the Spirit, illumine your heart, not only so that you can reflect that light to others, but so that you can see your heart in the light of God. But here's the thing. The light of God never illumines our hearts so that we despair. Second Corinthians chapter 7, I was once sent out of confession, in a kind way. I was sent out of confession. There's a room where my old priest did confession. He sent me out of the room and said, I need you to read Second Corinthians 7 and then come back in. And... That was one of those words which took root in me, became just important in a really intense way for the way that I conceive the spiritual life. And I hope that it maybe sheds some light on the issue for you. Um, 2 Corinthians 7 speaks of two kinds of grief. There's the grief that is godly and it leads to life because it's the grief that leads to repentance. And then there's the grief which leads to death. And this is despair. And you can you do not want to confuse these two things. Because when God brings conviction, he does so with a powerful accent of hope. If there is conviction with no hope, then the conviction is of the devil. Because those without hope look towards destruction. That's all they expect. And our Thoughts determine our lives, and our words create our world. So the enemy wants us to see only death and destruction, because that's the only thing that he sees. And he will use the idea of conviction to try to convince people to see death. But real conviction that is from God, it sees only life. Because the death that it sees is always seen through the lens of the tomb of Christ, which is empty. And we can pass through that death and be glorified in the experience of passing through that death. So if, when you think about these issues, you begin to realize just how far from the mark we all are. Just how much destruction each and every one of us has wrought with our tongues. I would just encourage you to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and to realize and ask for God to help you internalize what it means to have a grief that leads to life. And that life is the life that provides uncreated joy so that when we rejoice in the Lord always, we rejoice with the very joy 
with which the Son of God rejoiced before the world was made. So we'll talk more about this by God's will tomorrow. I hope you've gotten something out of it. Um, if you enjoy these videos, consider becoming a, a patron if you're in a good situation financially. If you need help with someone, please contact me, or help with something, please contact me and I can see whether um, I, I, I have something that might be useful. Um, and, and by help, I mean, if you're not a patron, um, something more than, 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 you're free to ask, of course, about anything. I might just want to talk to you about an interesting thing. But uh, what I'm most likely to talk to you about, if you can't afford patronage, is something which is causing you a personal crisis. Um, so if you're having a crisis of faith, um, I have just because you know empathy means you're able to um, understand directly what it's like to go through that experience. So empathy is kind of something which you're given by your life experience in general. So I I remember just how devastating a, a real crisis of faith is, um, and so I have a lot of empathy for those undergoing crises of faith. Uh, and if you're undergoing a crisis of faith, if you're not sure whether Jesus is real, whether anything is has any meaning at all, um, please do feel free to get in touch with me. And I, I, I would be very happy to talk things through with you. Um, um, as long as you commit to, uh, uh, to, to doing short daily prayer for God's help as well. So that's all I'll say. Uh, thank you for watching and I will see you again very soon.